I'm just going to start with one thing. Hi, everybody. Say hello. Hello. <laughs> I'm really aware I'm not wearing a bra. My tits look like they're headed to my waist already. I'm they just, don't My boobs, sorry. No, I literally, it's like, I, I think my nipple is, is just about joining my waistband. Yeah, I promise you it's not. You know, but this being, is quality content. It's quality content <laughs> and we start with the word tit. But anyway, I'm with my friend. I like to say my friend, Elizabeth Day. I love saying, I love hearing you say it and I love you being my friend. I know, but the thing is, I just want to say how fraudulent Elizabeth is. We're going to talk about failure, but I've set Elizabeth a challenge, which is to set up a dinner party with interesting people. We had this challenge six months ago. We had the conversation at Colbert and Sloan Square. I know. And the thing is about making a brand out of failure is that when I fail to do something, it's simply on brand. Uh, and you as a brand strategist would approve of that in one way. Do you know, I was thinking that on the way here and I'm really sorry I have failed you, but I keep thinking of it and I know I, it's basically because I want a guest list that is worthy of you and it's taking some time to curate. But here's a promise. I, I, I promise I'll do it before the end of the year. I'll do anyone. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll do, no, I don't mean like I'll do anyone, all right? Anyone listening. It's like there's a I legion should... of single men who are thrilled to hear that. Yes. And women. <laughs> and non binary royalty. <laughs> okay, let's. Oh, my God. So we've got to get serious here. Okay. Okay, should we just start? Okay, let me go. Let me wind backwards and say for those of you just like joining in a party conversation, I really think it's important to mention who this person is for those of you who don't know, because I'm trying to think when I didn't know you. I'll tell you when I got to know you, and this is interesting, is when I was doing a column in New Magazine and I saw Elizabeth Day and I went in and Joe Elvin said, I've just signed Elizabeth Day, it's so exciting. And I went, who the fuck is Elizabeth Day? <laughs> and then I went on a journey of discovery because I read your first column and I thought, mm, she's got a column and it's like it's in front of my column. And then I was like, I read it and I thought, oh, I, don't, I hate myself for this, but I like it. I like the column. I like the way she's writing. And then I looked up your writing and then I listened to your podcast and then that love of her began. But I haven't read a novel. All right. That's totally fine. <laughs> no, I haven't read a novel, but I want to read a novel. And I want to ask you, when people... And so, therefore, for those of you listening, mm. Elizabeth is a novelist. She has written five novels and three nonfiction books. And Friendaholic, I have read. And has two very good podcasts. But the one that I love is How to Fail with Elizabeth. And you've had on unbelievable people who I've discovered through your incredibly fantastic way of, of having conversations with people you. where you and this is where I might know the people for or not but you make me want to know them and research them afterwards because you've brought up something that's I thought wow I didn't you know I didn't know that I've learned something and I want to learn more so it's quite great Thank that's you. all I need here and I'm going to close that okay okay first of all I love that that's how you discovered me <laughs> through you magazine yeah isn't that just random yeah because I have always admired you hugely and now I admire you with affection and love you. <laughs> but it's so refreshing when you meet someone that you've admired from afar for so long and you discover they're even better in person. I like people even more who I thought were shit. Yeah. <laughs> and they're better in person. You know, that just Did like you think it's... I was shit? No, okay. I'm not. Don't be self-conscious here. I'm okay. just, it's a generalistic yes. statement. Yes. But I'm just saying that when I think... Oh, I'd love to meet them. And then they're even nicer. It's like when I thought, oh, they're going to be young. And then they're amazing. I mean, that contrast is so great. Yes. You know, that contrast and that's how you dress and how you live your life. On some days. Yeah. You spend your life, a lot of time, when you're not doing a hundred and one other things, talking to people about times in their life they felt they failed. Mm. Now, this is about fearlessness and fear. And fear is slightly different from failure, like to me. 
I'm hoping. It is, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I want to ask you, when you felt, in the last year, we'll start with that, when you felt the most scared, the most fearful? I think you will know the answer to this because you were a huge part of my learning not to be fearful at this particular juncture. And for me, it was when at the beginning of this year, I underwent yet another unsuccessful round of fertility treatment. And shortly afterwards, I was in a very dark place and I didn't know what to do. And I didn't know whether I should put myself through that again, my partner and I through that again, because as anyone who has been through it will know, it's an enormous amount of time effort. Um, your body feels like it's not quite your own and it can be a lot of money as well. And it was at the end of this sort of 12 year cycle of trying and failing to conceive. And I remember having breakfast with you at a really, really difficult time when I cried across the table from you and you gave me one of the best pieces of advice that I've ever been given, which was, and you said this with great tenderness and also as a woman who had been through similar things, you said, I think you need to let it go. I think you need to make an active effort to get up every morning and say, I'm letting go of this idea. And it doesn't mean that you won't pick it up again six months down the line. But for now, for you, for your state of mind and for the peace of your heart, that's what you need to do. And you were so right. And it really helped me because that's when I was most fearful, because not only was I fearful of not knowing what to do next or what the right, quote unquote, right thing was to do. I was fearful of the fact that I was feeling so, so down and it felt like my emotions were slightly out of my control. And when you told me that and you said it's going to be hard <laughs> and you'll really have to do it, you'll have to remind yourself every day and tell yourself that that's what you're doing, I started doing it and it honestly has made me feel so much more at peace and I have let that idea go now and I also had an amazing psychic reading that helped me again let it go and I now no longer feel at all fearful I feel really strong actually and really liberated because I feel like I'm on the other side of that. You said failure is what happens when life doesn't go to plan but ask yourself where does a plan come from? Exactly. So the plan, let's talk about the plan and yeah. that sense of what we feel we should do and what we paint as a path that we feel is the expected path. Yes. So where does your expected path come from? What's it cemented in? It's a great question because so much of that is to do with fear as well. I know. <laughs> um, so for me... There have been various junctures in my life where I've really had to let go of the plan that I thought I had for myself. And one of them was when I got divorced, which was when I was 35. Mm. So mid to late 30s is like a tricky time to get divorced. And I remember thinking I always believed I was going to... I had very boring plans. I always believed I was going to have a heteronormative marriage and I was going to have two children because that's what my parents had. And I was going to live in a house in probably South London along with all my other friends friends who had the same houses in South London. And, and how did it make you feel, this feeling of what you felt the path was? Did it make you feel safe and secure and a part of? 
another great question. I don't know if it made me feel safe and secure, but it definitely made me feel that I would belong. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's been a really key influence in terms of the decisions I made up to the age of 35, because I never felt that I did belong. Mm -hmm. And there are various reasons for that. And prime among them is that we moved when I was four to the north of Ireland. I had a very nice time at primary school there. When I went to secondary school, that's a difficult time. And children alight on difference at that particular stage of adolescence. And as you can hear, I've always spoken with an English accent and I didn't fit in. I was a year ahead of myself and I was a complete nerd and I wore corduroy trousers without irony and I didn't have a particularly good time. And when I left that school halfway through the school year, I made a deal with myself that the next school I went to, I would make as many friends as possible. That How was old going were you be, then when you I was this? 13. I was like, I, I, that's where safety lies, is in being accepted. And what I hadn't realised then, because I was so fearful, is that there's a difference between being accepted and choosing to fit in and changing yourself in order to fit in with people mm -hmm. and true belonging, which is when you're accepted as you really are. But I didn't know who I really was. And I think that I needed to go through the ripping up of the plan in order to discover who I really was. Yeah. But you, your plan was sort of, you're, in, you're nerdy and corduroy, so, mm -hmm. but your plan is very much, is it more a kind of who I want to be? Yes. So my plan at that stage was I want to be a journalist mm -hmm. and then I want at to... 13. Or, yeah, no, this is younger. Even, even earlier. So age four, I remember thinking to myself, I want to write books, which is a very weird thing. So weird. Uh, so weird. And there are no authors in my family. I think it's just that I loved being read to. Mm. And my mother taught me to read before I went to school. So books held a real value for me. And then age seven, I thought, well, I can't, I don't know if I can make a living writing books straight away. I need to learn how to write. So I should become a journalist first. And age then seven. I, I know. <laughs> I do. I mean, this is why I didn't have a particularly good time at secondary school. I mean, what a precocious brat. Yeah. What, what, what do you want to do? I want, I want to go down the, you know, see my friend. I want to be a journalist. I know. I know. But it's interesting that yeah. you had that. Like, it, yeah, you had it. And then do you think your sense of actually I need to make friends made you let go of some of the plan to then be accepted and have the friends or not? Did you ever let go of that plan mm. as you were transitioning to, I'm going to be the person who can have lots of friends? I don't think I did consciously, mm. but I think I was engaged in a slow motion act of self-betrayal where it wasn't that I was pretending to be someone I wasn't. It's just that I was always striving to be better than I thought I was because I didn't think that I would be good enough as a friend, as a student, as a family member, unless I were putting on some sort of act of betterness. So I think it took me a really long time to unpack that and to realise that, for me anyway, success and strength comes from authenticity and having key relationships in my life where I am wholly accepted for my authentic self with all the myriad flaws that I embody. That, for me, is where the good stuff is. And it took me a really long time. And I think it takes a lot of, particularly women, but but, but perhaps also marginalised people, it takes us a really long time sometimes to learn that because we're taught from quite a young age that we don't fit in and we're not good enough and our job is to please others. And when you're busy pleasing others, you don't have time to turn that lens on yourself and to work out who you are because you're projecting your sense of self to everyone else's opinions of you or what you think those opinions might be. Like, You're getting wrapped in a little thing here. 
Yeah, but I think well, throughout all of that, I thought that I was clear that I wanted to be a journalist, I wanted to get married and I wanted to have kids. So that was there was still this plan? Yes, exactly. Do you feel I am me at this stage? Yes. You do? Definitely. So when you're thinking my authentic self mm-hmm. and using the word authentic, which you know is a word that I don't think, <laughs> um, just because it's, it's overused. It's become but, so, exactly. Yeah, I wish, yeah. can we think of another word for that? Being real. Being, being me. Yeah. Being truly me. Yes. Being inside and outside me. Yes, congruent is a word that so my good. best friend who is a therapist uses, and I like Congruent. That. Yeah. And what's the dictionary meaning of congruent? That you're in alignment with right. yourself. But at what stage in your life did you feel you weren't you? I think I realised I wasn't being me. This is so meta. Um, when I got divorced, because I had thought at every moment up to that point... I want to be married. I want to be married to this person. Mm -hmm. This is the choice that I'm making. It wasn't the easiest relationship for various reasons, but I was very strong-minded about that. And I thought I knew myself because I'd had therapy at that stage. I'd had 12 weeks of therapy at age 27. I was like, I know myself. It's totally fine. Before you got married or when you were married or when you were getting divorced? Before I even met my now ex-husband. All right. And to realise that in spite of all of that, this marriage was imploding and I was going to have to leave or lose myself Mm -hmm. was a huge wake-up call. And I do remember at that point, very vividly, my best friend Emma staging a kind of intervention and saying, I feel that you are losing yourself and I can't get to you. It's like you're stuck behind a perspex screen Mm -hmm. and I'm knocking on it, trying to get your attention because I was so busy trying to pretend that everything was okay Mm -hmm. when deep down inside I knew that it wasn't and there's no better wake-up call for a people pleaser than getting divorced because you know for a fact that there are going to be lots of people who don't understand why you've made that decision Mm -hmm. and your ex probably actively dislikes you (laughs) so the person you once loved once in the world most in the world has turned against you in that way for completely valid reasons and Mm -hmm. you have to live in that discomfort and that really helped me start to let go but it was a process of years actually to let go properly of trying to live my life according to what I thought other people were thinking of me. Mm -hmm. So in that period of time when you were married, when were you most fearful? Oh wow. I have to be so careful what I say because I'm really aware that when I talk about a marriage, I know it's one of two. It's one of two stories, and so it's a mm-hmm. partial account. But I think the time that I was most scared was I felt so alone, and when Emma made that intervention and said that to me, I hadn't realised how shrunken and distant I had become. Mm-hmm. And when she said that to me, that scared me because I thought, gosh, this is the person who actually really does know me as I truly am. And I'm going to have to do something about it. And I think that's the really terrifying bit. When you know it's like you have to do something about it. That is, you're faced with the reality. You are an echo of your Mm -hmm. former self. Yes. Where in this fear when you had this, because when you can't really talk about it too much, there's other ways you can talk about it, which is in fiction. Mm. So which of your characters 
embodies that time in your life that you went through? Because I can't imagine you didn't put it into a character. That is an amazing question. <laughs> I have never been asked before. <laughs> That's so good. Okay. Um, it sounds like a lazy answer, but I promise you that it's not. In that I am all of my characters. So mm -hmm. all of my characters are aspects of me, even the sociopathic ones who act in really bizarre and unlikable ways. But it's sort of a part of myself that I don't bring out in polite society that is sort of this untapped bit mm -hmm. that I like to explore in fiction. Mm -hmm. But I think the closest character and definitely the one who went through some of my experience is a character called Lucy in a book of mine called The Party. And The Party was the first novel I wrote after my marital separation. Mm -hmm. And it was also, interestingly, the first ever bestseller I had. And the one that did much better than any of my previous books. And I don't think that that's a coincidence. Mm -hmm. I think that there was a liberation mm -hmm. that came with having left that dysfunctional relationship that I could then put on the page. And Lucy in the party is in an unhappy marriage, albeit for very different reasons from the ones I mm -hmm. experienced. She's married to someone who uh, has repressed his sexuality and who is emotionally unavailable. And yet there's something about that emotional unavailability that keeps her in the game. Mm -hmm. I can definitely relate to that in past yeah, experiences. Yeah. And Lucy goes through a miscarriage and that really changes the way that she feels about her marriage and mm -hmm. about what she's willing to put up with and about the fight that she's going to have to fight if she wants to have a child. And that is something that happened to me. I had a miscarriage in my first marriage and I felt incredibly alone. Mm -hmm. And I realized that that's something that I needed to prioritize. And potentially I wasn't in the right relationship that that would be a, a shared priority. So Lucy, I would Lucy. say. Yeah. So although she's braver than I am. <laughs> every aspect of yourself is in all your characters. So you are brave, darling. Yeah. But I want to ask you. In, if you look at books, and this is just a generalisation, but if we look at some of the great novels and the one, the party, the one that's done best for you. So, well, now, do I've, we, uh, now yeah. I've out succeeded that. Well, with, with, <laughs> with you, fantastic. Bravo. Thanks. Do you think when you're really happy, you don't write as well? No, luckily, I don't think that. <laughs> but I do understand where that comes from when people say something like that. Because I need to be feeling life deeply. Feeling. Yes. yes. And I think for some people, they can only feel life deeply if they're at the extremes. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, I feel very fortunate that I feel life all of the time. <laughs> and actually, when I'm writing, that's when I feel most myself. So in a way, that's when I feel most happy and at ease. Mm -hmm. I feel that I'm untangling something when I'm writing a book. It's my honestly my favourite feeling other than being in love. Mm -hmm. And so even if I were feeling anything else outside of those parameters of sitting down and writing, I know that I get a sense of calm from doing it. So actually, no. And because of the way that I write and because of the way my life has panned out, mm -hmm. I've had to write my books around earning a living <laughs> in other yeah. ways. Yeah. And so you've so, had to be practical exactly. in, when you do it and the times and... Exactly. Can you switch it on? 
Yes, I can. But I part of the challenge of my 40s is creating more space for writing because I do love it so much. And I feel that I don't want to make it a sort of piecemeal patchwork that I fit in and around other things. Mm -hmm. I now want to give it the respect that it deserves. So I've been putting various measures in place to do that. When I was writing columns and doing everything, August was the shitty time. So August was like, will I be recommissioned? Will this? It was a time of fear for me. Mm. You know, it was that time of the recommissioning begins and the show and all that stuff. Do you have that still? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I have a total fear that no one is ever going to ask me to work again. You do. Every but how day. often is that fear? Oh, every day. You know, there's that TikTok trend at the moment asking men how often they think of the Roman Empire. Oh, my God. I mean, what is that trend? But anyway, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I actually think of the Roman Empire quite often. But the similar trend for me would be like, how often do you think you're going to be destitute? Why is every it they day? only ask the men about the Roman Empire? Because I am obsessed with, okay, is it 300 BC to 618? No, it's 400 AD. (laughs) And I know so much about the Roman Empire because I I read about eight books on it. So I love the fact that, you know, and there's lots of people who ask their men and they go, I'm the Reverend. And they went, can you change it? Because it's a TikTok video. I'm just thinking, ask us. I'm We're obsessed digressing. with Vestal Virgins. <laughs> yes. I really am. Cece. Yes. So, so, they uh, could own property. They were the only women in the Roman mm. Empire who were allowed to own property. On My um, Dorinda Medley, lovely <gasps> Roni, her Stop daughter it. Hannah is at yeah. Harvard doing a postgrad on powerful women in the Roman times. <gasps> she went to Pompeii to go and pass all the mosaics of the men to look at those powerful women and and decipher their assets and how much prestige they had in that era because they were so respected. I love you love that. that? Yes. When you get her on it. desperate I am to meet Dorinda. Oh, I know, but come to New York and we'll Oh, yes, okay, I will. Okay, it's a deal. It's a good deal. Come to my bedroom and do the Dorinda workout next week. Yes, please. Um, No, I think about it all the time and I do think... Because people would look at you, Elizabeth, and say... They can't believe you do. Yeah. And I look at you and think, I can't believe you do. So is it habit? Yeah. Or is it really there? It's really there. Um, And I appreciate, as I'm speaking about this, I am enormously fortunate and privileged. But there were times that that wasn't the case and I knew what it was not to have money. Hmm. And to have to rely on the gift of the gab, the luck of the draw, like, in order to put funds in my bank account. I I don't think anyone has this feeling unless they've been through that situation. Because I'm entitled as fuck, but I've been through that situation of Mm. having no money, not knowing where it comes from. So we it's referring back to something. Yes. Always. It might be five years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, but it's there. It doesn't go. Yeah. I had a little cry recently because I was like, I spent spent too much money on holiday and I I felt so anxious and fearful. Mm -hmm. And my husband gave me really good talking to, like calm and loving. Mm -hmm. He was like... We earn money in order to spend it, to mm-hmm. have good experiences, mm-hmm. and then we earn more money. And mm-hmm. <laughs> and I often have to go through that constructive, pessimistic thought process of thinking to myself, what's the worst that could happen? Mm-hmm. The worst that could happen is that I lose everything, that I lose my job. I lo- no one wants mm-hmm. to listen to House mm-hmm. anymore. No one wants to read mm-hmm. my books anymore. Mm-hmm. Would I be okay? Mm-hmm. It would be awful, but would I be okay? Mm-hmm. And I actually think I would be okay mm-hmm. because I thought, 
I could learn a new skill or I could drive an mm -hmm. Uber or like there are mm -hmm. things that I yeah. feel. So that's what, how I have to talk to myself. Sometimes. But is it good to be in that mindset? No, right. because it's a mindset of scarcity. Yes. And again, you and I have spoken about this. I know. Because I wish I didn't have it. I wish I came from a place of abundance because a scarcity mindset has such a negative impact on my life where very often I might love someone and see their success and love that success for them and that can live alongside feeling like but is there going to be enough for me and feeling that sense of competitive jealousy and I wish I could let that go because it's so exhausting but also it does give me drive and motivation yeah all oh, right I'm yes I want to unpack all of this because okay. I think this is a really interesting conversation so with your husband's words which are very wise to you we have to let go of the past and look at where we are today. It's yes. that thing of we must, you know, the thing of living in the past and living in the future. Living in the future is the comparative stuff with your friends. It yes. really, it is. It's like I see my future going this way and they're doing. It's, it's sort of all look where they are now. And that, I have to say, Elizabeth, I have let go of 90% of my life because I think I did so much of it when I was young. I had to let go and I just can't be with people even who are like that. I, I don't want to say it to you in a way of being judging, but it's like it's something that never takes you anywhere good. Yes, right? and, I'm, and I'm, I'm not as bad as that makes me sound. Like, I, it's definitely something that I've struggled with in the past. I, but, but I don't now, think you... I think you celebrate other women's successes. I do. I, I think the thing that I find tricky is not to do with friends. It's actually to do with people <laughs> who who I might see from my very partial viewpoint don't deserve the success and acclaim that they have. Ah, and I okay. feel the injustice of that mm. very strongly, not just for, for me, but for other people as well mm -hmm. who are doing amazing work and don't get the attention. All right, all right, yes. And I think as a society, sometimes we value the wrong things. Mm -hmm. So that's more where I'm at now. And mm -hmm. I do genuinely, like, I love other people's success when I think they're brilliant. But there's so much stuff that isn't that brilliant and that gets all the attention. All right, so you just, you don't like injustice. Uh, it, that's it's, a it's, huge thing for me. Yeah, injustice. Yes. All right, all right. I get it. So this slight, soft little fear every day... Yes. Um, ..is manageable. Yes. Um, when you are delivering a book, giving birth to your book, mm. do you have a huge expectation? Where's your fear on that? Yeah. I once had a conversation with a lovely friend of mine called Sadie Jones, who's an incredible novelist, and she said, every time I sit down to write a book, I think I'm going to build a cathedral, the most beautiful, intricate cathedral. And then by the end of the manuscript, I have come up with a perfectly serviceable garden shed. <laughs> and that's my experience every single time. Really? And the thing is that garden sheds can be wonderful and exactly what you need. But it is an exercise in managing your expectation. Because when you're confronted with a blank page... Yes, that can be scary, but it can also represent limitless opportunity. Yes, but then yes. you ruin it when you put your own words on it <laughs> and then it becomes something. And obviously, I'm hyper aware of my own limitations. And I think the only way that I was able to start writing books seriously mm -hmm. was to understand that I was never going to write like the people I most admired. I was never going to write like Tom Wolfe. That's just, it's just a fact I've had to accept about myself. But how I do write is completely 
really unique to me mm-hmm, and my set of mm-hmm. experiences in my life. Mm-hmm. And once I realized that, that was very freeing. So now, because I've done it enough times, I'm aware that I will go through that process. And by the way, there's always a process, and I don't know if you find this, about two thirds of the way through of writing a book, you then are at the stage where you need, you know you need to end it. You know mm-hmm. you need to mm-hmm. land the plane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it feels like, and at that stage, I'll sort of reread it. And I will reread it and think, this is the worst piece of shit that has ever been written. And I am so embarrassed and fearful of how horrendous this is because it's going to have to be published because I've signed the deal and it's going to get out there Mm -hmm. and everyone is going to laugh at me and the critics are going to howl at me and it's going to be just the most humiliating experience of my life. And yet I still have to finish it. And then by the time I finished it, still thinking it's execrable, Mm -hmm. Then something weird happens where when I reread it again, it's actually okay. <laughs> yeah, that, I, I had exactly that. Did I, mean, you? I, it's I write different books from you, but we've written <laughs> the same amount of books probably. And with the book I've just done now, I did feel three quarters of the way through. And when I was doing the edit with my editor, have I put enough in here? That sounds trite. It's too much. No, it's too little. It's too little. Do I need to write more on this? You know, and I just tore it into the ground mm. I really I destroyed it in my head I was like who's gonna every yes. single thing you've yes. said and then when actually then when I was looking at the galleys still felt that a little bit but then I sort of read some things and I went did I really write that yes you know so there was that moment of god that that was okay that sentence or that that resonated with me were those my own words yeah. you know that sort of thing well, you, you, did you ever because you and I are of an age where you, we used to hand write our exams and our courses yeah. and stuff and I used to keep them and then read them back like years afterwards yeah. and I would think to myself wow I can't believe I knew all of that that's yeah. so impressive <laughs> no. it's but with you, that feeling no you were the SWAT I was the failure so that's not going to happen you to me you were cool no, and I, I was, was not. not I was neither cool and I wasn't the SWAT. I, I mean, would it was have been your can I, no, but can, you weren't. I would. There were none at the time, apart from very weird girls. So actually, you probably would have been my friend. <laughs> but the thing is, I had that moment when I was ten, eleven, at school, really stupid, stayed down a year, made friends with the wrong girls. In well, tried to really make an effort to make friends, like you, and in, in that mm. second school, and then I had to stay down a year because I was really stupid, and then. All the girls ignored me and then I was another set of girls. There was nothing appealing at that stage. And then acne took over. So it was like, really, yeah. it wasn't until I was 15 that I came out of that whole episode. Yeah. For sure. Um, so anyone who's writing now or anyone who's listening, because they admire you a lot. They should, really. Um, and who wants to be a writer. And I know you started young and you started from a journalist to a writer. But what advice would you give somebody who thinks they have a novel in them? And I have many women on the Fearless podcast. We had a woman who wants to live in Italy and she wants to write a book. And it was like, what's stopping you? You know, that's the one thing about a book is you can do it at any any time. But what would your advice be to somebody who's saying, I want to, but like the idea is inside your head. It's never going to happen, but it's never going to be destroyed. What, What would you say? I would say a couple of things. First of all, no one has lived your life. So no one has your set of experiences and no one has your voice. That's why you are worthy of telling your story. And the story that you tell and commit to paper might not be like anything that you've read and it might not be the kind of book that you like to read, but it has a place and it has a uniqueness. 
And the second thing that I would say is that so much of fear, the fear that comes attached to whether I'm ever going to write a book, comes from the fact that you haven't started. So writing is as much a craft as it is an art. You need to treat it like building a house and you need to start with foundations and putting brick in front of brick, on top of brick, and you need to actually do the work. And that starts with just putting a word on the page and making a deal with yourself, which is something like, I'm going to write 500 words today. It doesn't matter if I think they are terrible words. I need to put the words on the page. And then you have something to work with. Because the great thing about writing a book, unlike writing for newspapers, is that you can go back and edit. And there's like a whole time period where you go back and finesse mm -hmm. each sentence mm -hmm. if you want to. But you have to write the words in order to be able to do that. So just start without thinking that it has to be amazing or the most original or something. That's but never do you been have to before. start with the idea of a book or do you just no. start writing? I just start writing. So you don't think this is my plot. Let me put it down. No. Inter I, that that yeah. is a revelation to me. So. So you'd start writing about anything? And it, it's especially interesting given how we started this conversation. It was about how I was attached to a life plan. Yes. But I didn't have plans for my novels ever. I didn't have plots because I found the idea of that like a straitjacket. I felt that I was delaying the actual work by putting together a revision timetable, mm -hmm. you know, rather mm -hmm. than doing the revision. And it just slightly deadened me inside the idea of it. So with my first novel, Scissors, Paper, Stone, all I had was the idea of someone in a coma and his family gathering by his bedside and each of them having a different version of his life. Each of them knew something that the other person didn't about who he was. Mm -hmm. And I just started from that. And it taught me something really important, which is that for me, it's crucial to get in the mind of a character and to have their voices. And that informs the plot. So it starts with character and then they almost tell me what the story is what the story is because then I want to explain why they are the way they are why mm -hmm. are they speaking like that why are they emotionally distant and then you get into backstory and that's always been the starting point for all of my books have all your books then been in the third person no I with the party was partly written in the first person mm -hmm. actually no it was two first person narrators yeah when you're talking the party I yeah. mean we're going back to it's closer to you you're you're writing down a part of your life yeah, it's a little. Yeah, it, it's an interesting one because with third person, you get to put in all of your own observations as a novelist. Mm -hmm. So you can describe the weather in the way that you would want to describe it. You can use the vocabulary that your omniscient narrator has at their disposal. But when you're writing first person, you really need to know that character inside and out. Mm -hmm. And you need to know what words they would use, mm -hmm. what vocabulary they wouldn't have access to. What was their education? You know, do they notice paint colour and yeah. so there's a different way of writing it but I found it quite fun and I did the main narrator of the party is a man called Martin and I gave him some of my experiences so he worked on the evening standard <laughs> or I think I called it the bugle as a kind of art critic and so I knew all of that newspaper mm -hmm, mm -hmm. milieu and because he was an art critic he did notice things and he could use florid language and that was quite enjoyable. And did you write up his character somewhere on your wall or was this all inside your head? It was all inside my head until about halfway through the novel when my editor read it and was very supportive and she said, I just think 
we need to be really careful about plot points because it's written as a psychological thriller mm -hmm. and you have to make sure that the plot is watertight for it to be convincing if it's taking twists and turns. Yeah. And so at that point, I mapped it all out on a big piece of brown paper mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and I had one square for each chapter and mm -hmm. I had colour-coded characters mm -hmm. and I was like, this is what they're going to do. And then I had a pictorial mood board mm -hmm. where I basically just put pictures that looked like the character of Martin mm -hmm. in my head and mm -hmm. the character of Ben in my head mm -hmm. and basically just ended up with a mood board of very handsome men, <laughs> including Dominic West, who I then met at an award ceremony sometime after that. And I bowled up to him and I was like, you know... I you were on my <laughs> mood board, darling, and yes. I would like to cast you when I do the movie. Yes, Which exactly. is really the obvious one. Yes. So if you... Have you had any options? Yes. Which one's been optioned? Uh, the Party's been optioned, Magpie's been optioned and How to Fail has been optioned. Oh my God, you're just living in option land. <laughs> um, let's hope the SAG strike is over I soon. I know. Um, if you are your most fearless, how do you paint your future? What's your... So a friend of mine is a writer, a scriptwriter, and he's working with somebody who used to motivate Lewis Hamilton to win Grand Prix. And there's a lot of people who sort of motivate people in sports and they do a lot of visualisation. Mm. Do you believe in visualisation? Slightly had I know. But, no, but I I'm believe just... in it technically, but I just find it difficult to bring myself to do a mood board. All right, let's forget the mood board. All right, but I've let's... tried. All right, so, so, with, so with this friend of mine, it's it's you know maybe they're sort of thinking, I'm clutching two Oscars. So it's what's the journey to get there? But you must have in your most fearless moment. Hmm. How far can I go? So what is how far that Elizabeth Day can go at your most fearless? It's, I have a very conflicted answer because when I went through that period of my life where I ripped up my plan for myself, mm -hmm. I became very anti-plan. This very, is not a plan. I know, but I became very sort of anti-looking into the future because I thought I just want to instinctively be able to respond to opportunities as they arise in my present. Is this a cop-out though? That's the thing. Having said that, <laughs> I am, I'm ferociously ambitious. Mm -hmm. I'm ferociously ambitious professionally and I will come back to that it's not a cop out but when I look into a contented future mm -hmm. what I hope for is a long life lived alongside the love of my life mm -hmm. and a beautiful villa in Italy mm -hmm. where we can be old age pensioners together pottering around our tomato plants that mm -hmm. to me sounds like heaven mm -hmm. um, professional success looks like <laughs> You ready? Yeah, okay. I'm ready. Looks like number one podcast in the world. Mm -hmm. Podcast production company. Definitely want to do that. Mm -hmm. Book a prize winner. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Or just any literary prize. I've yeah. never been long listed, let alone shortlisted, let alone one anything. I really want to write a great novel. But you write great novels. Thank you for saying that. I mean, I... You, you're not... Who am I trying to win over? Because, I don't know. Because the, the thing is, it's, it's like... I'm never going to be Tom Wolfe. No, because Tom Wolfe's Tom Wolfe. And Tom yeah. Wolfe is a challenging bloody read, let me just tell you. Okay, <laughs> so Elizabeth Day is a read where you're in there. You're Thank in there. You. And that's like, for some people, that's what they want more than they want bloody Tom Wolfe. Do you know, it's so interesting because I think I've got such a, an idea in my head of a sort of literary establishment mm -hmm. who are very highbrow mm -hmm. and who look down on the fact that I'm quote-unquote accessible. <laughs> and that's so ludicrous because, A, 
I I want to be accessible. I want to connect. Mm. I want to communicate. That's all I want. I know this challenge. I know this challenge. I know this challenge because I have this. Last night I went to a dinner where everyone there was prestige beauty. You know, just like incredible iconic brands. Yes. That I grew up with. Yes. Loving, like you grew up reading Tom Wolfe and thinking, my God, if I could be a writer. Yes. So the way those brands are positioned, the pack, everything. So then I come along with accessible, uplifting, Mm. joyful Trini London, which, you know, some day branding is beautiful, other days we're a bit messy. Mm. But we have heart and soul. And I want to be the brand that doesn't scare people off. And for some people, Chanel is like, I can buy the fragrance because I can never buy the handbag. But there's something to that, which is aesthetically staggering, emotionally, not so much. So when you look at... Such a good comparison. Okay. So it's it's a very like-for-like comparison in terms of what we grew up with, what we felt was the epitome of success. Yes. And the women we are and what we're producing for the women of today... And what does that success look like? And that's why we have to live in the now. I completely agree. And actually, I think that it all comes back to this idea that we're not good enough in some way, Mm -hmm. which is ludicrous. And the most revolutionary thing that we can do as women is to believe that we are good enough and that we can claim the space and that the space we claim is unique to us. And that uniqueness actually turns out to have universal resonance because if we're brave enough to accept and embrace ourselves that's something that other people will be inspired by and can relate to so that's going to be what I strive for I have to say what you didn't include in all of this which I would have included is things that in my mind are the most tangible that they might happen you have three books that are optioned you didn't mention watching the movie oh that's so true you know you didn't mention it and that to me is like that's like halfway there People have read it. The books are successful. Somebody's optioned it. They love the option. I know there's a thousand million options out there, but yeah. there is the opportunity that what you wrote as prose is going to be in somebody's mouth. And you might be involved also in articulating that on the celluloid screen. Yes, I would love that. You're so right. And also because I have great respect for that art form that I would really love to see what they do to a piece of work that I have put out into the world, but I'm really happy to let them adapt it and see how it comes alive. And that your word, your thought process could be to millions. Podcast is millions for you because you have millions of downloads. But what's interesting is when you want to have this element of accessibility and bringing challenging things. You do this in the podcast all the time. You bring a really challenging subject and you'll make it so accessible that somebody's not, you know, they might think, oh, can I go onto that podcast because it's so technical or it's so highbrow? Mm. And they'll go on your podcast and one day it could be somebody like me who's not, you know, the scientist and well-read and whatever, but with one point of view. And the next day you're listening to you, Incredible Mind, which you're giving, giving mm. the platform. And you're also interpreting so that they can speak in a way that other people can understand them for the first time. There's people I've heard on other podcasts and I don't understand and then you interview them and I suddenly understand them. Oh, thank you. That's you know, such which a, is a huge thing. Thank this, you. But this goes back to that accessibility. Yes, and that not being a dirty word. Like that's Do you want amazing. to be Tom or do you want to be you? Definitely want to be me. Yeah, you want yeah. to be you. Yeah, and I think so much of that is about letting go of ideas that we had about ourselves. <sighs> And almost being fearful to let go of the idea because then it's like, well, who am I then? Mm -hmm. But actually there's such freedom on the other side of Mm. that. But we can cling on so long. So long. Yeah. God, this has been a great therapy session. Thank you. (laughs) 
This is honestly me. <laughs> I've loved it. Okay, so I think that what I would like to do is we do a podcast together. <laughs> I would love that. Are you joking? I would love so that. Like um, I set up my podcast production company. Uh, so, um, when were you most scared in your life? Um, there are plenty of times that I was emotionally fearful through all of the fertility battles that I fought. But the time that I was most scared I was going to die is when I went with an ex-boyfriend to Tunisia and we drove through the desert in an attempt to get to a hotel for a night and we got stuck in a sandbank and it was the midday sun and we had barely any water and we had like four biscuits left in a packet and we were stuck there in the blazing heat. It was like 50 degree heat. It was so hot that we couldn't touch the metal of the car and we both thought we were going to die. So that's genuinely... How long did the feeling last? Uh, we were there for about an hour, an hour and a half before mm. finally over the horizon, magically, this four-wheeled truck came over the horizon and I thought it was a mirage. I was like, don't believe it, it's the mirage because we're in the desert. <laughs> but actually it was a real car and they managed to tow us out and give us water. Water has never tasted so good. And I think also, if I can have one more... There have been periods in my adult life, that was when I was a student, but there have mm. been periods of my adult life where I now understand I was depressed, but at the time it just felt numb. I didn't think I was depressed. And there's been a couple of times where I've thought, I wonder what it would be like to walk in front of a car. Mm -hmm. And that's as close as I've got, but that's really scary mm -hmm. when you look back and you realise that you've thought that. Yeah, I think I'd choose that one. Okay. Because you were only yeah. an hour in the desert. <laughs> but the one, that the, 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 the um, latter one, is one I can identify with of that feeling of yeah. what would it be like to not be here? You know, having even that for a second, mm -hmm. you really scare yourself. Yes. You really scare yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting when you are interviewing somebody who we've been interviewing before. You interviewed me. We sort of chatted to each other at that lovely evening. And I was a bit nervous to interview you because I felt I want to keep to the subject of fear. So I don't want to be self-conscious to bring it back to fearlessness and fearfulness. And that's it. And the thing is, you are never boring. You always give something. You're always so interesting. I always have takeaway. I feel exactly the same about you. And thank you for such a fantastic conversation. I have enjoyed every single minute. Oh, I mean, I just could chat her all day and I hope that you enjoyed listening. I found it fascinating because I know many of the people who listen are thinking... What am I doing next in my life? And we had on the podcast where I just talked about people's questions. And I remember this one woman saying, I want to write a book. So I felt for that one woman, always think of the one person when you ask a question, because there's many more out there who aren't asking the question, but who feel it. What does it take to write a book? And I learned a lot from how Elizabeth described 
how she started writing a book. You don't have to start with the idea. You can start with a situation and a scene and build it out. And the characters tell you where you're going. I've, I was mesmerized by that. It made me think, maybe I have a novel in me. And I hope lots of you there who are thinking, you know, I don't know how to start this, will be inspired by her words. And I just enjoy the conversation so much. So that's it for season one. And I can't thank you enough for being on the journey and listening. It means so much to myself and the team, especially the team who do all the hard work behind the scenes, that we've had so many downloads. And please do subscribe, download episodes, because it really helps to get the podcast out to more people. So we're busy now lining up our guests for season two, and I'm going to start that recording when I get back from a work trip. So... Until next season, bye.